Well, thanks for joining us for our Friday Five Live conversation. We are happy to have you all with us today. And if you have any questions or comments during the presentation, you can just use the chat feature. And please be sure to select all panelists and attendees when you submit your questions and comments. And our host today is Meg Foster. Meg Foster is a first-year experienced instructor and academic coach at Piedmont Virginia Community College. She has over a decade of teaching experience both online and in the classroom. And prior to her work with online learning, she coordinated college orientation programming at Reynolds Community College. And Meg, I'll pass it over to you now. Well, thank you, Melissa, and welcome everybody. Um, happy Friday, happy November the 6th. It's crazy that last week we were getting all prepared for Halloween and now here we are launched well into the month of November already, it feels like. Uh, we are so, so fortunate to have um, Tom Tobin here with us today um, to talk about online learning. Um, a really, a, such an appropriate conversation for so many different reasons, one of which is now next week is National Distance Learning Week, which I feel like this year should just be everybody's week, right? I mean, <laughs> so many of us, whether we intended to or not, um, are teaching and learning online um, this fall semester. So um, it just feels like a very appropriately timed conversation. Um, Tom is the program area director for distance teaching and learning um, on, the, on the learning design development and innovation team at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, he is an internationally recognized speaker and author. And um, I was sharing with Tom before we kicked off that um, uh, my former supervisor, Dr. Ghazala Hashmi, um, at Reynolds Community College um, required us to read several of his books um, and she was very excited to hear that I was going to get to speak to such um, an esteemed um, expert in the world of online learning. Um, Tom, I think Gazala also has a bias because she too has a PhD in English <laughs> literature. So I know there's that kindred soul matchup thing um, going on there too. But you also have so many pro professional certifications um, and in a, especially those really surrounding this world um, that we are working in in online um, learning and accessibility. You're an expert on UDL. I mean, we're just really, really grateful um, to get to have you here with us today, Tom. Thank you. Thanks a bunch, Megan. And and I'll I'll say right off the bat, um, I'm one of those crazy people who got my doctorate when I was 28. You know, went right through from high school to a master's degree to a PhD, and I turned around and I didn't really know how the world actually worked at that point. So I went back and got another master's degree and a professional certificate in this and that and the other. And now I tell my nieces and nephews that I'm in 42nd grade. So. Um, it's totally not a competition, everybody. You should definitely rock what you've got, be an advocate for and a support for all of your colleagues. I'm here to support all of you, and I'm grateful to be part of this conversation. Uh, I know that the Friday Five Live program, we've got a few conversation starters, but this is also your time. So if you have an idea or a question uh, and uh, you're here in the, the Zoom call, the live call, post that into the chat. We'll give voice to it. We'll bring you into the conversation. So grateful to be here. Um, and, and thank you for, for expressing that encouragement. Um, we do really want to make this time while Tom and I certainly sort of created some conversation topics to get us started. We love to hear from our audience. So if you've got specific things that you've brought today that you're wondering about, um, I know we're nine, 10 weeks into the semester. Um, I'm teaching uh, five online classes. 
at times it feels like it's working well, at times it feels like we're all just struggling. Some days it's lots of little black boxes um, and not a lot of faces um, to those black boxes. Um, and many of us also have children at home. Um, and I think the things we know about in online learning at the higher ed level are certainly impacting what I'm seeing happen with my children in grades uh, two, six, and eight. Mm -hmm. uh, the sixth grader was marked absent for band yesterday um, because he didn't turn his video on. So um, it's always a fun conversation um, that we're having uh, here in many, many ways, in many different levels. So do please choose that chat to, um, to connect with Tom and I and uh, make sure that your voices get heard today. So Tom, just to kind of kick us off, you know, as we're looking at higher education now, and I'm wondering if, and this is such an appropriate conversation um, topic to kick us off with since just yesterday I mentioned to you, I was having um, a conversation with a colleague at Wayne State really about this very thing. Mm. Are there initiatives that you're seeing that are proving particularly effective to engage our students and support their success online? Um, and, and I'm thinking both in and outside of that sort of formal classroom experience. Absolutely. And it, it's a, a, I love the way that you're framing this with you, your sixth grader who was marked absent from band because he didn't have his camera on. One of the things that we're learning uh, very quickly is that the more we can give our students voices, choices, and a sense of agency, the more likely they are to persist in our classrooms, whether they are grade school kids, whether they're high school students, college and university students, adult learners. They're more likely to stick with us. They're more likely to come back and take more courses later. And they're more likely to be satisfied with their experience. So that feeling of, yes, I belong. And yes, I have some choices about how I move through my education. Those are becoming increasingly important now that we're working on remote school for a lot of folks, or we're working on online courses or toggling back and forth between in-person and needing to be flexible. The COVID-19 pandemic has brought the entire campus on board with the need to understand remote, distance, and technology-mediated instruction at at least a basic level. We're finally to the point where we are now collectively shifting from our emergency response footing to a more flexible design model. And that has some challenges that we can talk about in a minute. But what's kind of odd is some of us are insisting that we have to replicate as much of the feeling of the live classroom model in our remote teaching. That's why your, your child got marked absent for band, right? Because you have to, it, it's not going to be a real class unless it's taking place in real time and I can see you as a student. Mm -hmm. So hence all the live Zoom sessions, right? Now, our face-to-face -face teaching was often itself not the most engaging experience for students. Long lectures in 400-person halls, a reliance on high-stakes, simple design examinations, that's not engaging even when we were face-to-face. -face. Mm -hmm. So we've got a lot of opportunities when we shift over to remote teaching to think more about being inclusive, think more about mm -hmm. what the circumstances are, where our students are. And good online teaching is different from in-person teaching, yes, but its very flexibility is its advantage. And I, I'm mm -hmm. seeing that there's a lot of initiatives that folks are doing um, if you look at the University of Delaware, 
they have a wonderful initiative out. Uh, my own university at University of Wisconsin-Madison, we have a, a, a smart restart program where we're offering courses on ground as much as we can. And we're also making sure that every single one of them has an online alternative for people who can't or prefer not to be there. Sure face-to-face. And uh, the folks at UW-Madison, uh, we're, we're right now seeing our pandemic COVID-19 numbers go way back up. And uh, there's a lot of areas of the United States and Canada where the pandemic numbers are starting to climb again. Mm-hmm. And folks are recognizing that we have to be prepared to be flexible regardless of what happens next. And I think that's the biggest trend that we're seeing. So a lot of flexibility. You mentioned, I think, the University of Delaware. What are what are you seeing them do, Tom? That I felt like, did I mishear that? No, uh, the folks at Delaware, uh, they have a restart campaign there, where they're offering students the opportunity to. Uh, do many different models depending on the program. So they have, for example, their nursing program. It's a challenge to have some of the the practicum and and, uh, place-based learning that happens in a nursing program. Difficult to have that happen outside of real-time and face-to-face. So what they're trying to do at Delaware is they have prioritized various programs based on how much can we do remotely here, how much should be synchronous, and how much has to be face-to-face in person, either because of accreditation requirements or because of the nature of the interactions that we have with students. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're actually leaders at Delaware in making those choices about which programs go in which buckets. And uh, we've we've learned a lot from them. So I'd encourage everybody, uh, if you're listening to this later on, go take a look at their website. And uh, they've got one of their drop downs is resources for faculty members, resources for students. It's a really good place to look. Oh, thank you. It's awesome. Um, So online faculty, I mean, I feel like having now been in the world of online learning for over a decade, our faculty come to it from a variety of different places. And, and we, of course, have seen faculty, you know, who have been very much face-to-face classroom teachers, and now they're having to shift. And, and I liked the language you used about how we're, we're moving out of this time of emergency, you know, into this very kind of intentional time. Um, so what are some high-impact high ways that we can continue, I think, to support our online faculty and I, I feel this very deeply because there are times when I feel like I'm, I'm kind of running out of steam, um, mm-hmm. to be honest. It, it's taking a level of energy this semester that it's never had to take. Um, Absolutely. Before. And, and I've, I'm going to share a secret that might make a couple of people mad, and then I will immediately make you feel better. The, the secret is we already know how to do this, right? So way back in 1996 and 97, when I was working at a two-year college in Pennsylvania, I helped them to adopt Blackboard version one. That's how long ago this is. And online teaching was a new thing. Mm -hmm. And in the first couple of years of online education, uh, online courses looked a lot like face-to-face courses. We were using that model and we were making online versions of the face-to-face courses. And we rapidly figured out that online wasn't just a different way to teach 
the same stuff the same way, but it actually gave us affordances that didn't exist in a face-to-face -face environment. And so back in say 98, 99, the year 2000, 2001, those of us who chose to be distance educators, mm -hmm. we figured out all of these things. Like you're, you're worried if your students are gonna be dishonest because you can't see them or they're remote from you now. We actually figured that out 20 something years ago. You're worried that it's gonna take you more time because there's lots of setup that needs to happen. We figured that out 20 years ago. That's what's gonna make some people mad. Oh, Tom, you're speaking from a position of privilege and you know this was online learning was just for the people who could afford the time and effort and energy to do it. And you're right. Hmm. Now with the pandemic, everybody is in the same boat. And even the folks who had their arms folded going, there's no way in heck I would ever teach online. You're teaching online. You're teaching hmm. remotely or at least with some kind of technology mediation. And it's a scary place to be because it does take a lot of setup and it takes a different mindset. And it really is a different skill set to teach online well. So how can institutions support our online faculty in a meaningful way? Five things. One, we should define a core set of technology-mediated interactions that every instructor should know how to design, facilitate, and teach. And that should be a small and broad set of things. So for example, every online instructor needs to know how to share information with students using technology mediation. How do you send an announcement? How do you send out a text to all of your students? How do you communicate with them? The specifics don't matter as much as the fact that you know how to get in touch with all of your learners when they're not there in the classroom with you. How do you teach a concept using technology mediation? How do you get the ideas across to students in more than one way so they're likely to catch on? We do this automatically in our face-to-face -face classrooms. Students will say, hey, Professor Foster, that was great, but I still don't get it. And then you go into a different explanation or you uh -huh. try to find a different resource or you spend some time doing a little reteaching. And this is something that we have to do more intentionally when we're talking about online and technology mediated. One of the other skills that I would say under that one would be how do you oversee a conversation? One of the biggest lies that we've told ourselves is that an online discussion should be, here's a prompt, respond to me once, and then respond to two of your classmates. That turns a conversation into bean counting. And it's not something that we would do in our face-to-face -face classes either, right? Imagine you go walk into the classroom and say, everybody respond to me once now, and you just go around the room, and then now respond to two of your classmates, and I'll check off and see who's responded. It would be so robotic and so boring and so deadly dull. So for online conversations, how do you keep the students engaged? You show them, here are some models for an online conversation oh. that takes place. Here's how you could respond. Please, when you respond, keep the conversation moving forward, either by asking a question, building off of what somebody else said, or bringing in ideas of your own or challenging some of the ideas. And those are the ways that we can assign credit for those kinds of things. Oh. All of our online instructors should know how to respond to practice. In other words, we have created a problem of our own devising, and this is true for face-to-face -face and online stuff. We have created so many things that we have to grade 
that we all complain about how much grading we're doing. We designed it that way. We can undesign that. We can give people practice opportunities that aren't graded, but we just give them quick feedback here and there. Oh, you hit the main thing here. There's a couple little things you should work on, but this practice is ungraded. And maybe you say out of the 10 practice things in this semester, if you do all 10 of them, you'll earn 5% on your final grade, but each of them is not graded by itself. And the last piece that everybody should know how to do online is how do you assess students' skills and knowledge? And this often will not take the form of a five-page essay or a multiple-choice test. Online, you have the opportunity to design your interactions. Even if you're teaching something concrete like mathematics or something practical like nursing or welding, um, those demonstrations of skill, you can have students record themselves on their mobile phones you know, as though they were a news reporter talking about your topic. Mm -hmm. You can have them show what they know by recording themselves working on the screen in software and then sending that video over to you. So there's lots of different ways that online affords us ways that students can have choices about how they demonstrate their skills. And all of that puts together into instructor participation. So sort of one out of five is that core set of technology mediated interactions. Let me run through the other ones real quick here too. We need to shift from a training to a support model for our instructors. Instead of everyone has to learn how to use Zoom or else, we should say we are a Zoom campus and we'll help you get familiar with the tools. That way, somebody who hasn't used those tools before or is unsure about how to use them, it's not, oh, I have to learn this because the administration said so, but it's, I'm going to get the support to be able to use these tools at a basic level. And the third one, support experimentation among our faculty, especially those in precarious situations like our adjunct instructors. If you don't have it already, I'd encourage you, please talk to your president, your provost, your deans to create, in in the Monopoly game, we'd call it a get out of jail free card, but a letter from the provost that says this person is doing something innovative or trying something new. So we will collect the student ratings and we'll do the peer observation or the administrative observation of your teaching, but we won't count it toward bringing you back as an adjunct. We won't count it toward your promotion and tenure portfolio. And maybe you can apply for one of those every two or three years, but give people a way to experiment, try things out and make it low stakes for faculty members. Right. Last two. Tom, I have to just say really fast. That's intriguing because that's some of the things we say with our students, right? Mm -hmm. Let's give them low stakes opportunities to, to learn and, and why don't we then afford that same opportunity to our faculty? That's really powerful. Well, and, and two, to, to your point, it's also a problem that we've designed for ourselves, right? So we've got promotion and tenure processes for people mm-hmm. who are on the tenure line. We've got uh, decisions about whether to hire an adjunct to come back next semester or not. We've got decisions about who is first in line to choose courses that they're going to teach for next semester. Those are all problems that we put together and we can change. Mm -hmm. And so we have the opportunity to make those changes and give ourselves those opportunities to try something out and really screw it up badly if we need to and learn from it and find things that actually work, find things that are useful, find things that are engaging. And that actually leads into my last two ideas here for high impact practices. The fourth one is don't train only our instructors in inclusive techniques. 
So universal design for learning, trauma-informed pedagogy, inclusive yes. learning theory and design. Our IT people need to know that. Our media services people need to know that. The registrar, counseling offices, you name it. Because when an instructor goes to the media services area and says, hey, I really want to try the flipped classroom technique, their response shouldn't be, uh, by the way, you're nine years too late. Their, their response should be, yeah, we'll help you by sending a student with a video camera to help you record a lecture. And then we'll help you by chunking that up into small bits and we'll help you by putting the captions together with you because that's just what we do at our institution. Right. And uh, if, if it's on the shoulders of instructors only to do good and inclusive design, that's why only about 10% of us actually do it. We're all busy. We have other things that we're doing. We're serving on committees. We have family responsibilities. We're teaching at three different institutions. Uh, we, there's lots of, lots of good things that we understand and all agree are the right things to do, but we might not have a lot of time to do it. So make sure that everybody at the institution is trained up. And the last one, this is for all you administrators out there. Refine, revise, or create your intellectual property policies about who owns what, especially because we're now putting all of our content into a fixed format, into the learning management system. We're creating videos, we're creating documents that now live electronically. There should be clear policies at colleges and universities about who owns the materials. My hint, let your instructors own their content. If they want to take it with them to another place, let them do it. If the, at the very least, make it a mutual grant of license. So the institution owns this version today, but the instructor can take it away and use it okay. somewhere else. Okay. So, so the big five things, core set of interactions that everybody knows, shift from training to support, uh, support experimentation, okay. train everybody, not just instructors, and Look at your intellectual property policies. Those are big things that we can do to support online faculty members. And then in doing that, we really transform the institution, don't we, Tom? I mean, I'm thinking about coming out of that student services perspective. Yeah, I'm throwing a few rhetorical bombs here, but I think these are things that, these are all manageable things that your leaders, when you talk to them about how these changes help to increase student persistence, right. retention, and satisfaction, those are the things that keep administrators up at night. So use that right. kind of language when you're having those conversations. Right. This is just um, reminding me, you know, when I got involved in, in online learning, it was because we were doing our quality enhancement plan, which is part of our SACS accreditation mm -hmm. process in, in the Southern Association. And, um, and it was called the ripple effect. And it was all about improving online learning because there was this strong sense that if we could improve the outcomes and um, support of faculty and students in online learning, it would have this impact that then reached into our face-to-face -face classes. So um, mm. Tom, I feel like you're rippling there with us. That's and cool. What you're saying. Hey, before we continue on, we've mm -hmm. got a bunch of folks here in the, the live call. Does anybody have a question or an idea that you want to, to bring up for us? We'll pause here for a couple of seconds, put it into the chat to that all panelists and attendees who are using Zoom here. And uh, we'll give voice to those and see if we can address some of those things. And it's always great to see people from all over joining in our conversations today. Yeah, that's pretty neat. And uh, while, while people are thinking and typing in, uh, one of the other things that uh, 
you have to learn as an instructor or a facilitator is to be okay with silence. So if you're, if you're giving your learners or your participants, you know, if you're talking over that or, or stuff like this, it's why I'm kind of whispering now to give people a little bit to just think and do here. Otherwise, uh, here's a stat for you, Meg. Do, do you remember the, the statistics about how long professors and instructors usually pause when they ask if there are any questions before they start going again? <clears throat> Tom, you're putting me on the spot because I should remember since I just finished the AQ course about three months ago, but I'm going to let you, no I don't want to quote. If, if, if you had to guess, most people guess that it's, it's somewhere between 10 and 15 seconds. It's actually around four. <laughs> and so we say, are there any questions? Beat, beat, beat. Okay, thanks. None. Bye. We'll just keep going. <laughs> so being, being okay with silence is one of those skills that is totally a learned one. And when I started teaching, I really stank at that. So, so we've got some ideas uh, coming in here. So thank you, everybody. Uh, we've got Ashley saying, how do you overcome faculty resistance? Faculty seem to be comfortable with the emergency mm. online design. It's an excellent question because one of the challenges that we had uh, back in March and April of 2020 was that we were trying to get everybody just to the starting line, if you want to call it that. We were trying to create interactions that allowed instructors to feel comfortable and still get a minimal set of interactions and skill demonstrations with students. And the format that that took almost always was a series of live video sessions because it tended to mimic what faculty members and instructors were already used to. It tended to mimic what a face-to-face -face classroom would be like. And the attendant expectations that came along with that actually presented a lot of problems. So, you know, faculty members would say, you have to have your video on or I can't see you. I can't see your reaction to me. And that created Zoom fatigue for people. Well, you have to... Uh, do your exam on this day during this two hour window and maybe our lives are a little more complex than that right now. Mm -hmm. So one of the ways that we overcome faculty resistance is I ask my faculty colleagues when I'm in the conversations with them, I ask them to define where are those pinch points? And if you've read my UDL book, this is a favorite concept of mine. Where are those things that don't go the way you had planned it over and over and over again? Right? So you're teaching remotely now, and in week two of your course, your students always ask you the same procedural question by email 700 times. Mm -hmm. That's a good place to start thinking about how to be more inclusive or thinking about different ways of interacting with your students. Where do your students always get things wrong on a test or a quiz as a group, and you end up having to reteach? that's a place where we need to focus our ideas and energy. And all of the arguments that we're making today, faculty members and instructors, they are more likely to want to know about them if we are helping them to address problems that they themselves come up with. So Ashley, the, the short answer to your question is, ask your colleagues to define where their problems are and then find solutions for those problems or ways to address those challenges, ways to make things go a little bit more easy. And uh, there's one here from uh, Andrea says, uh, an idea is to set up an open Zoom room for faculty office hours. Oh, she's responding to, to Ashley, this is awesome. 
she says, I also recommend calling them student hours or student conversation hours instead of office hours. This is especially helpful for first generation students. And Andrea is right on the money here. Um, you want to know why even in your face-to-face -face classes, people didn't come to office hours? Because many of your students didn't know that that's what they were for. That I've, I've heard lots of students say, well, it says office hours, so that must be time for the instructor to be in the office working on things, and I don't want to bother that person. And you've got a lot of, of students, uh, not just first-generation students, but a lot of your adult learners as well, they don't have people in their families who were in situations similar to the ones they're in now. They don't have anybody to ask to say, is it appropriate if I do X, Y, or Z, or I don't wanna bother the instructor. When you're online though, one of the best things you can do is explicitly say to your students out loud sometime, I'm interruptible, you can talk with me, you can come on the, the live microphone, or I have some office hours for you. And these are meant to be practice uh, sessions or ways for you to talk about how things are going for yourself. And your students are much more likely to, to engage in that way. So Andrea, thank you very much for that. And Ashley mm -hmm. says that she offers a virtual course design hour for faculty members once a week. And that's an awesome thing there. Cool deal. Thank you everybody for, for putting some things in the chat. We're going to continue with some of these other questions too, but uh, please, as the mood strikes you, put something into the chat and we'll give voice to them. Tom, so our next question is asking you to get out your fortune telling hat for us. Um, but if you had a crystal ball, and I know so many of us want a crystal ball for so many reasons right now, what do you see as your future trends, uh, see as future trends that are gonna come up in online learning? And, and I've kind of listed two thoughts um, and I'm seeing just a lot of chatter in different places, listservs and things around textbooks and of course teaching techniques, but, but you have a very robust vision, I think, of, of the future, given um, your expertise and, and curious about what you're seeing. The, the crystal ball works forward and backward. So it, I love the way that you're phrasing the question because there's a, the movement toward using more open access resources is picking up steam. But uh, I, I want to quote from uh, Sean Bain and her co-authors of the book, The Manifesto for Teaching Online. And they unpack this idea in a really good way. Um, they, it's, the quote is, openness is neither neutral nor natural. It creates and depends on closures. So if we're offering things for free or we're opening up access in one way, we have to be cognizant of the structures within which we're working. I actually just finished reading this book a couple of days ago. And it just came out a couple of months ago. I'd encourage people to, to look it up or ask your libraries to grab a copy. It's called The Manifesto for Teaching Online. And Sean Bain and her co-authors uh, are from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. They're part of their uh, digital teaching and learning lab. And they've been experimenting with uh, why things like artificial intelligence proctoring and uh, plagiarism detection software is actually part of the surveillance culture in which we live uh -huh. and using those things. Uh, we think we're using those things in order to guarantee student uh, academic integrity. We're actually sending a message that we don't trust the students and students are much more likely to think of, oh, well, if we're, if, if we're being observed here, 
is there a way to get around the software? Is there a way to game that system? And so they're actually a little bit more likely to be thinking in terms of, of antagonistic relationships than if we were just to say, here is the way we expect you to do it and please do it that way while also you know, keeping an eye on the analytics in the background or something like that, that isn't as intrusive. And uh, the, when we think about future trends, uh, you're gonna see a lot of conversation around the ethics of online design mm. and teaching. And uh, the one lesson that we knew back in 1980 when we were doing you know, correspondence courses in the mail, 1990, when we were sending out VHS videotapes to people and people were watching sort of the cable access channel mm -hmm. for university of the air kind of stuff. And in 2000, when we were just first starting out with online teaching, a lesson that we knew back in those days, it's still true today, but we've gotten away from it a bit. And we're gonna see this come up more often Good teaching is good teaching, regardless of the technology we're using, regardless of the time shift, regardless of where we do it or how we do it. And I'll put this in quotes, but the learnification of higher education, kind of assuming that all we need is well-designed learning tools, spaces for learning to happen and motivated students, that shifts our attention away from the emergent quality of teaching, right? So good mm. teaching isn't just I'm following my syllabus and I'm reading from my lecture. Good teaching is having the conversation with students, finding out what they know, what they don't know, letting the conversation sort of go where the students push it based on your expertise as an instructor. And uh, it assumes that the only barriers that we need to lower are the ones related to just access to materials, right? If we give them access to our students, access to the videos and the readings and all that, they'll just learn on their own. Mm -hmm. And that is patently not true. Um, you know, build it and they will learn is only a small part of the equation. We're going to see a shift in the coming years towards structures and systems that allow for variation, improvisation, collective entanglement, if you will. Instead of best practices or teaching techniques, we'll focus more on the goals of those learning interactions and be more comfortable with some of the messier idiosyncrasies of the act of teaching itself. I'm a, a big advocate for bringing the teacher back into learning. Because if it's just you, know, you and the materials, where's the instructor? What role does the instructor play? And the instructor is the key role in good education. I'm, I'm scribbling notes frantically, Tom, because this is such good stuff. I'm grateful we're recording so we can listen later too. I know, I know. Although it's hard to listen to my own voice. Um, all, but that is all very intriguing. These, this concept, I hadn't, you know, even really grasped this idea of what's the ethics of online teaching and our design and and this shift you're right we we, we speak so often right now particularly about access because we're so concerned about these students who are being left behind i think we're seeing it at all all ages and all stages mm -hmm. um really across our educational systems and but what does that do when we only focus on, on those that concept of access um, well, and, and bringing, go ahead. No, I, I, you're, you're sparking something for me here too. And, and here as an administrator, I'll take my share of the blame that for years we've been focused on technologies and systems rather than on the interactions themselves. And 
for face-to-face -face education, uh, those of us who are in the classroom, we would probably all agree that the goal of a face-to-face -face education is not just to impart information. It's not just me standing up at a lectern, lecturing at everybody, and then you get what you get, right? So there, there's sort of that old uh, colonial model of the lecturer, and then the tutors are the ones who actually work with the students to have the conversations and, and test and query and figure out where they are. In the United States, Canada, North American model, um, the, it's the instructor who does all of those roles and the instructor part of being a good instructor is to engage with our students mm. to understand where they're coming from now that's really hard to do when you're teaching a lecture hall full of 400 students it's really hard to do when you have technology mediating some way uh, and we have to learn different ways of having those interactions fortunately we've got a lot of good models for those ways of interacting we've got a lot of ways that we can be proactive in reaching out to our students and lowering the barriers for access to the interactions themselves without also dumbing down or lowering the rigor or quality of our content. We should keep that complex. We should keep that rigorous. But ask any president or provost about what their priorities are for their online programs. And it's, we got to get a good price on our LMS and we've got to make sure our faculty have the technology they need. Okay. When they're should be, and I think we're going to see an increasing focus on our faculty members need to be trained well, have skills and feel comfortable experimenting in whatever way they're teaching. So that can be face-to-face, -face, online, blended, high flex, asynchronous, synchronous, weekends only, a course is a course is a course. And I'm hopeful that that's a goal that we're all going to be working toward. Well, that's a really I think lovely segue into this kind of last question, which gives us, I think, some time also to, to pause um, and, and ask for more audience participation. But a lot of thoughts here about, you know, our return to normal, and I put that in quotes, um, and wondering kind of what you see as being the legacy of sort of our pandemic learning experience here in our industry. Um, you know, we've, we've invested now so much time and, and I think resources into um, supporting online education at, at all levels. I mean, I, I think about the, the rapid transition, right, of my second graders learning experience mm. um, and the resources that have been put into that. But then I'm also seeing it, of course, at the college level. So what do you, what's going to be our legacy here that we're going to live into? Are we going to continue to see high flex and blend flex and all these different uh, new terminology that's emerging. Uh, while I'm answering this, I'd like to uh, ask all of our folks who are on the live participation call, uh, put into the chat, if you, even if you don't have a question, what's one thing you're going to take away from our conversation mm -hmm. here today? What's one thing you want to try out, one thing you want to do? And we'll, we'll pull that up at the end here. But I love the, this question to, to end on, because what's the future of higher education? What's the legacy of pandemic learning on our industry? The one lesson that I think everyone in higher education can agree on is that we owe it to ourselves to be prepared for flexibility in the future. In December of 2019, I was still reading laments from theorists and researchers that although some of us have been designing, teaching, doing research about the best ways to teach using technology as a mediating factor, 
online and distance education were still seen as niche parts of the college experience. You know, oh, that's for people who can't come to campus, or that's for working adult learners, or that's for military learners, or for people with disability barriers in their lives. Technology mediation was seen until very recently as a good enough little sister to the real college experience of the in-person classroom and being a student on campus. Now, everyone is facing similar barriers. Instructors, support staff, administrators, all of us are suddenly seeing that a lot of what we used to perceive as excuses from students or lazy behaviors from students really weren't those things at all. People don't have laptops and desktop computers or even reliable internet at home. Our students really are working full-time jobs, caring for their families, and trying to squeeze study into their busy days. And, and today that's more true than it was a year and a half ago. You know, so compassion, understanding, and flexibility, they're not just nice sounding goals for woke campuses, right? They're bottom line business decisions. Students who persist with us, so the students who are there on day one, and they're more likely to be there to take the final exam. Students who are retained better. Students who take a class from you are there to take my class next term. And students who express satisfaction about their schooling at higher rates, that means we keep more students for longer under better circumstances. And kind of to sum up here, we're, we're finally realizing that a lot of the problems and issues that we've been concerned about in higher education for a long time, academic dishonesty, mountains of grading, students not doing the readings, only a small fraction of students actively engaged in class, it turns out those are concerns that we can address through how we design our learning experiences, both for online and for face-to-face, -face. and how we make it flexible how we humanize and frame those experiences to be welcoming and supportive. So maybe the legacy of the pandemic for many years to come is that we're finally all working under the same circumstances. Hmm. The Ivy League, community colleges, wealthy private colleges, public land grant universities, huge systems, small single field graduate program, all of us. And those challenges have caused us all to rethink how we prepare to meet uncertainty with flexibility, empathy, and what I would argue is real academic freedom. Mm. Those are powerful thoughts, Tom, as we consider, and, and you're right. I mean, we've, it, I don't think at any point in time, and I was a history major, I don't think I told you that, but I don't think at any time in, in American history, have we had this place where all of us in our educational experiences are facing the same set of challenges whether or not it's my community college or Harvard University, mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and, and I, I, I'm so struck by the need to continue to be flexible and the need to be compassionate and humanistic in our approach, because I, I feel like we've, we had come to a period of time and I hope it's changing where we kind of stepped away from some of that and that, um, that's why students persist and that's why students are successful. Um, and, and more and more, I think, as we look at our students, I mean, just this week, there was research that came out about, maybe it was late last week, about community college students and the number of them who work full time, mm -hmm. right? Or, or three jobs um, and, and how that, we, that isn't an excuse, it's the reality of their lives um, and how powerful to be able to support them 
um, in finishing up a degree because we know the impact of that both to their own lives and also to the communities that we live in. And, and I want to give a shout out to our community college colleagues, uh, especially here, because in the United States, community colleges enroll one third of all college students and one half of all college students who receive a degree from a four-year institution, half of them have taken some credits at a community college. So two-year colleges, technical schools, community colleges, they are really the backbone of our higher education system. Um, there's, there's only a couple of Ivy League, Harvard, Brown, Princeton, Yale type of places um, because they don't serve everybody. And so what I'd love to do is, even if you don't work at a two-year college, reach out to the folks who are at the community colleges in your area. Chances are, they've got the grant money, they've got the advanced skills, they've got the promotions and, uh, and programs for faculty development, and they're usually running rings around the rest of us uh, who are at the, the colleges and universities. And uh, they're usually addressing practical challenges years before the rest of us do. So a big shout out to our community college colleagues here as well. And uh, this would be a wonderful time too to pause for everybody who's here on the live conversation and ask, are there ideas or questions you'd like to raise? Or maybe what's your one takeaway from our conversation today? What's one thing that you've heard about and you wanna try? One thing that you're already doing, but we've underlined it as being important for you, or just one thing you'd like everybody else to know. Pull down on that all panelists and attendees and we'll uh, share those things out. Tom, I don't know if you've seen that Nikki chatted into us about her, if you want to share that. Oh yeah, so, thanks Nikki. She's, she's saying that her takeaway is renaming instructor office hours, student contact hours, that's genius. I'll add to that and I usually call it the uh, the water cooler or the tiki lounge or the coffee bar. Uh, something that, that has a connotation of, this is a place for informal chatting, conversation, that kind of stuff. Matthew says his takeaway is the importance of policies regarding intellectual property. That could have been our entire time today right. uh, was, was looking at intellectual property policies. And uh, for those of us in Canada, the, the, there is not actually uh, countrywide law. So that's provincial law governs uh, what the defaults are for who owns what in terms of the, uh, the Canadian Copyright Act. And in the United States, um, the copyright uh, statutes in the United States, it means that uh, according to the law, everything that we do for our colleges and universities is owned by the colleges and universities. So if we're employed by them, that is work for hire and they own everything we do. But there is a long tradition in higher education of granting faculty members ownership of their intellectual property. And it's just that a tradition, and it applies usually only to faculty members, which is why every college and university uh, worth its salt is going to create a detailed policy about who owns what, and they should be giving those, those ownership rights, in my opinion, to faculty members and staff, or at least share them with faculty members and staff to encourage innovation and encourage people to own their stuff. Other ideas, bring them in the chat here and we'll, we'll get to them. We've got some time for other questions. We've got some time for your, your big takeaway as well. 
And Tom, I know that I'm supposed to give 12 seconds of, of silence, but <laughs> um, for the sake of time, um, just as a reminder to our listener and audience that there will be um, a survey that pops up um, at the conclusion, which is helpful to us. It's one of the ways that we gather um, ideas for future conversations and topics. So if um, you have something that you'd really love us to, to, to delve more deeply into in our Friday Five Live, please fill out that survey. It's so very helpful to us. Um, and next, in our next session, which is November the 20th, um, we are going to be talking about um, the higher ed job search in the middle of pandemic. Um, so many colleagues have been impacted by layoffs and furloughs across our, our industry. And so we've got um, two experts who are gonna come and, and speak with us about uh, their advice and recommendations for if you're um, in a place where you are out there job searching. Oh, that's uh, going to be a great session. Yeah, Kimberly uh, just put her big takeaway. She says, I'm not teaching right now, but her takeaway, and I've heard this many, many times, compassion, understanding, and empathy are required to keep students engaged. That's the absolute truth. Kimberly says, we need to be flexible and humanistic in our approach, and this applies to our staff colleagues as well. That's a wonderful note, I think, on which to, to end for today. So I'll say thank you, Meg, for a lively conversation today. And thank you to Innovative Educators for inviting me to be part of Friday Five Live. This was fun. Well, thank you, Tom. I'm just so, so incredibly grateful. And I know our listening audience is grateful for your incredible insights as well. Um, we hope everybody on the line has a, a restful weekend. Um, I know for many of us, it's been a hectic week. So um, happy Friday. Um, please take care. Um, be well, rest and renew. Thank you all so much. Thank you, Tom. All right. Take care. Bye-bye, everybody. Bye. And just as a reminder, if you're still on the line, please do fill out that survey as it's so very helpful to us to capture that, um, your ideas for our future conversations. Know how much we appreciate your time today um, and have a wonderful weekend.